2SER acknowledges the custodians of the Gadigal and Darug lands from which we broadcast. Hello, my name is Evan Shapiro, and you're tuned to Celluloid Dreams, 2SER's home of film and screen culture. Joining us on the show this week is Australian writer-director Rolf Tahir, along with lead actress Majami Hussain. They dropped into the studio to discuss the new dreamscape film, The Survival of Kindness. Also on the show, we review The Giants, the new documentary about the life of living national treasure, Bob Brown. This is not your average biopic, so stick around to learn more. And we open the Celluloid Dreams vault to hear from scientist and conservationist David Suzuki in a compelling and relevant interview from 2010. Stay tuned. You're listening to Celluloid Dreams. Wish you could hit the bottle but still keep a clear head? Subscribe to 2SER now and you can be enjoying no and low alcohol alternative drinks all year round. That's a selection of extraordinary alcohol-free natural wines, craft beers and other non-alcoholic spirit substitutes delivered to you monthly. Subscribe at 2SER.com before April 30 to support 2SER and go in the draw for this great prize and much more. No and Low are proud sponsors of 2SER. Dutch Australian writer director Rolf de Heer has for many years made films on his own terms. His latest film, The Survival of Kindness, is a strange post apocalyptic dreamscape. Rolf and his lead actress, Majami Hussain, joined me in the studio for this chat. Wanjemi and Rolf, welcome to Celluloid Dreams. It's great to have your company on the show. Wanjemi, The Survivor Kindness is your first film, and I'm wondering how you how you came to be cast in the role. I received uh, someone from a community group I belong to. Had they they were looking for um, an, a black woman of my age, and they encouraged me to apply. I did send my application and uh, I met Rolf for the first time and went through questions and yeah, just like that I was I was uh, taken as uh, the main act- actress. Yeah, I understand that you you hadn't been to the cinema before, no, no, so no. this w- is a very new world to you. Yeah, it was a uh, it is a very new world. Um, I didn't know how I will act and uh, I never been to cinema as uh, I said but I had courage and uh, when I saw Rolf is uh, confident they're having me and I just g- g- gave myself the courage and confidence and that's how it happened. You brought some of your own personal experiences to to create this character you've you've had obviously had some you know some very dramatic things happen in your life that you drew on and I'm wondering in what ways you found it challenging. I didn't find um, challenges but I would say um, I'm very used to walk bare feet. Um, That was part of of my life. I grew up walking without shoes and uh, the film uh, involved walking a long distance uh, bare feet which to me was normal and, yeah, just part of my life. And, yeah, no challenges at all, yeah. Did you have any hesitation in taking the role? 
Yes, I was um, not sure how we act because I was not sure how, what acting involved. Um, when Rolfo was talking about script, I didn't know because also uh, uh, being in this film, I was learning new skills and new English words and acting role as well as uh, most of things. So when Rolf talked about script, I didn't know the meaning of script. Anyway, script, what, what it does, it means. And uh, he explained, and I didn't want to show him exactly, I'm, I'm not understanding, because I was curious to be in, in the film and see what exactly they do. When I saw him confident and having me and said, yeah, I will, I, I will try. But when I went home, I said, mm, no, no. And we spoke, we discussed with my family and my husband. I'm not sure if I will, I will. how, what they do. I, do I have to memorize things? And acting, if they ask me to, I don't know how acting, what, what does that mean? And Rolfo said, no, you you will be fine. I know. And my husband said, no, he knows. If he does, if he suspects, he will not take you. So if he say he will take you, he knows what he will do. Well, certainly your screen presence really holds this film together in a, in a very dynamic way. Rolf, if we can turn to you, the film has a dreamlike structure. There are many moments of breathtaking natural beauty contrasted with sort of an inherent ugliness of, of a post-apocalyptic world that echoes past injustices. But you've also got uh, a manifestation of socioeconomic concepts of the industrial complex and the effects of the pandemic. I'm curious to know how this film took shape. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They call it poetic dystopia. That's that's the phrase that I hear coming back at me occasionally, and I think, oh, yes. I had uh, lost a film in a sense that I was I was going to make that I was very precious about um, when COVID happened. Um, I was in the process of starting the contracting for the financing, which was somehow remarkably all sort of together. Um, but there was Italian money and there was French money, and and they were two of the mainstays. And of course, Italy and France were hit very hard with COVID early and particularly the cinema industries and and this was distributors money and and so on and and you know they were going broke faster than they could could uh, make money i needed to do something i i i i felt and and i also felt i needed to rewrite the other project but i i didn't know how to i didn't know what to do with it and i thought okay if i make something in a completely different way uh, and i will learn some lessons and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't. I just knew I needed to make a film, and it needed to be low budget. It needed to be COVID nimble, and and I just started by thinking, okay, well, look, maybe I should just start looking for locations. And okay, Mount Wellington, Kunanyi is is nearby. Why well, don't say nearby? It's it's an hour's drive away. And there's lots of places on, on Konanyi that, that are worth exploring and there you can find things. And, and I'd never really explored it very well. So I thought, okay, I'll start with that. And so I began to find locations that, that somehow spoke to me. You know. And then one, one morning, uh, go, driving in to the mountain, I had this image come into my, my mind 
of a black man in a cage on a trailer in the desert left to die. The image wouldn't leave me. It kept staying there. And after two days of this, I thought, okay, well, you know, stop and think about it because now you do know something about the film you're going to make is that it starts there and it starts in the desert and that's nowhere near Kunanyi. Uh, and so I have to go to South Australia for that. Uh, but I do know it then, it may have to, because of all these locations I found here, fantastic, you know, they, they do, they speak loudly. And I know now that it's a, it, it's, it's a journey. The film has to be a journey. And so if you have someone in a cage starting a film in the desert, blah, 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 and you have a journey, well, they've got to get out of the cage. And then they've got to walk and they've got to get there. And, and so things started to fall into place. But it was very much fashioned by the locations uh, that and, they, and, and it could be. And so I could concentrate on finding truly cinematic locations that, that the notion of having that opening image already speaks politically very strongly to what the film is. Uh, and there's nothing I could do about that apart from say, I don't like this and do something else. But it was intriguing. And the poetic dystopia that it became uh, was because I was able to look for really cinematic locations and I, I, I did keep reminding myself all the time that that there was an opportunity to make something a bit differently you know I, I felt I wanted to make it with you know as, as time went and I thought about it with, with a small crew a very small crew and ultimately became a very young crew people I'd never worked with before and it grew and it evolved with the whole what I call the collision between Black Lives Matter and the pandemic with that overhanging it, because that was the time that I was doing this, this finding of the locations, with the best will in the world, once you have that opening image and you're making it in those times, you're thinking about it in those times, those themes tend to come forward out of these locations that I'm finding and thinking, what could be here? What? It was a very complex evolution to where it became where, 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 where it was. It was no, not a clear idea of this is what I'm going to do, but how do I draw a film out of what I'm thinking now and what I'm seeing now? And, and, and it was a wonderful process. When Bad Boy Bubby came out, I heard a quote from you, which was that you had set the beginning as a bit of a war of attrition. Audiences' reaction is something you can't control, but... I'm just wondering how you would like your audience to approach this film. I've learned that in the cinema, one can, in a sense, ask an audience quite a lot, as long as you reward them. And that was the thing with Bad Boy Bubby, was that the the opening portion of it is, is, is hard work. And although some people prefer that over anything else in the film and wished it would go on like that for the entirety of the film that he never got out, you know. Um, in the end, it's rewarded, you know, the, the, the hard work in that first half hour. Well, in, in this film, I, 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 I think it's completely different. It's much more open to interpretation. I quite like the idea of that because I know everybody's going to see a different film anyway, and that's one of the lessons I've learned is people just see different films. You think they've seen the same film. They haven't at all. And so it almost doesn't matter what I do. Somebody's going to think about it this way or that way in a different way. And so 
I allowed myself to to have that openness, which was a change for me. And I, I think the audience will find it. And so far, it's very much the case. I mean, we've had Berlin, we've had uh, Belgrade, and audiences in both places uh, took to the film very strongly. Not everybody loved it. Some people who loved it had difficulties with it, uh, but enough of a proportion of people just absolutely were unconditionally... They loved the film... I don't know which film they saw <laughs> some of the time. I'm completely happy with that. So I think an audience can go there and, and they will get, uh, you know, they will have been to the cinema. Yeah, it, it definitely has a, a very strong visual sense and 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 having uh, that, that sort of, that visual core. Yes, but it's also, for me, cinema is also about ideas and the way we deal with them. Mm. Um, it isn't just how something looks. Not at all. Um, uh, and, and, you know, if you can combine them all, that's then something really cinematic. And when I say them all, I mean the sound, mm. the music, and, and, and they have a part to play with the entirety of what is cinema. The use of language in the film is really interesting, with, with some characters muffled by gas masks and, and key interactions between characters that speak completely different languages. How did that idea evolve? It evolved into the original script. I didn't start off by writing a script. I started off by looking for locations and then finding certain things. And so um, once... I understood that uh, that the film started in the desert. I went straight away to the desert and began to look for locations in roughly in sequence. And, okay, the, the Tasmanian locations that I had, there were sort of locations that I could use or not at that stage because I hadn't yet worked out what what was taking place in the film but then once i worked for the with the locations in in south australia you know uh, okay so the character is in the cage has to escape escapes begins to walk here's a location what might happen here okay and the first few things that might happen here there was just one person and so there was no dialogue and then the first um, location that I found that somehow wanted another character there uh, was was when Gunman came on the scene and the boots, you know, get stolen. And, and somehow that had happened in my head from that location, okay? That somehow seemed to want to come out of it. Now, in, in trying to write the scene then, because I knew then that, that I could write that scene, it didn't feel right that they understood each other. It just didn't feel right. And so that then started off that. And I thought, I just went with it. Okay, they, they have different languages or from, from different cultures somehow. Um, and, and so that sort of went in. And then going a little further and then finding Sick Man and then why would she be able to talk to him? And, and, and No, it just felt better. And so it became that. And then once the, the film started to form, it began to make sense. I, I was then conscious of the fact that this was going to be the film. It sort of occurs to me that some of this film might come from a frustration with action on climate change. Is that a fair comment? 
do I have frustration with that? Yes. Was I thinking of that consciously while I was doing the film? No. Um, the film came from a more relaxed place within me than just about any film I've done, I think. It, there was an initial core of, of anger that, that in a sense triggered it, um, which was to do with that Black Lives Matter and, and pandemic collision. And the anger was over the clearly, sometimes covertly, but, but sometimes even overtly stated uh, business from some of the leading politicians in the universe that the pandemic was not so important and it didn't matter so much because most of the people who died are black people or poor people. And, 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 and that got me angry. And that, in a sense, then is, is because who I am is who's writing the script and that's who I am at that time very strongly. And even though I'm very relaxed towards it, 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 it permeates the, 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 the subject matter. Majami, just uh, one last question for yeah. you. Now that you've successfully had a leading role in a film, mm. is acting something you're going to pursue? I think from uh, um, this film, my eyes and my mind is now opened to um, take any opportunity, uh, acting opportunity, performances, I can say, uh, if it's theatre or film or yeah, any performances and acting, yeah. I'm very now interested. And not only me, even my children, some of my children are very interested. <laughs> they, they perhaps want to follow in your footsteps now that they've, they've seen. Because they believe now, oh, we can do, we can. Oh, we, we were thinking some, some of activities or some of work, they were belonging to particular, a particular group of people. But now, oh, okay, so we can now, oh. Why not if we have capacity? Or if you feel you can, why not? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely, why not? <laughs> Thank you both for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you and speak with you on Cellular Dreams. To S-E-R. That's not true. You're not unlovable. You're not unlovable! What are you talking about? There is always something to love. Even in a stupid, stupid universe where we have hot dogs for fingers, we get very good with our feet. These forests, they've been growing there for at least 65 million years. It's like you are in another world. And that's what we're here for today, to save the little that's left of this sort of magnificence. Part warrior, part man of peace, but always committed to a cause. He's not out to make money. He's not out for his power or possessions. He's there because he has a spiritual connection with that forest, then he's willing to fight for it. We are here to stop destruction, to exhibit love and to put things right. We were ready to fight for the Franklin in a way that the Petter people hadn't been. It's like a whole subterranean train network all humming around and buzzing and we have no sense of that when we walk through the forest. I 
came out of jail one day, the next day was elected into Parliament. The worst nightmare of the major parties had become a reality. There's no doubt that people felt like he had no place to be in Parliament. A gay man and then women, women turned up. It was an incredible baptism by fire. Oh, well, I've had shots fired in my direction. Vigilantes come in the night. It was a complete embarrassment, not only to yourself, but to the Australian people. I thought I was on my own for the rest of my life. How wrong I was. The story of life is a story of daring leaps across species boundaries. You can't go to the shop and just get the forest in a flat pack. For him to grow the way he did was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Every now and then, a film comes along that is both important, engaging and fundamentally educational. When it comes to the environment, these include An Inconvenient Truth featuring Al Gore and Force of Nature, the documentary portrait of environmentalist David Suzuki. We can now add The Giants to the list, the new and unflinching documentary about the life of Bob Brown. The Giants beautifully interweaves the milestones of Bob's life with an exploration of the ecology of the natural world he has fought so hard to save. This is achieved in the film by drawing on ecology and environmental experts and the use of beautifully rendered graphics that give us great insight into the unseen ways native forests and waterways work. There is still so little we know about trees and forests and how they communicate, but it's truly fascinating to learn what is being discovered. Central to the film is the native gums of the old growth forests in Tasmania that give their name to the title of the film. It's these imposing giants that offer breathtaking and visceral moments of wonder. On its own, Bob Brown's story is one of courage, conviction and love. The film paints a picture of a man thrust into the spotlight by his desire to protect the world he is fundamentally connected to and deeply loves. In the face of the destruction wrought by human greed, Dr. Bob Brown has dedicated his life to saving the natural world and along the way became the first openly gay member of parliament in Australia and the leader of the world's first Green Party. By following the life of Bob Brown, the film chronicles the major protests and developments of the Australian environmental movement. These include historical moments such as stopping the Gordon Below Franklin Dam project and the formation of the Wilderness Society and the Greens. The fight continues in retirement as the Bob Brown Foundation battles against issues such as deforestation and the unconscionable anti-protest laws that protect industry and defy our democratic rights to free speech. Filmmakers Rachel Anthony and Lawrence Billiard have worked hard to make a film that is both informative, moving and accurate. It's clear Bob Brown would not have made a film just about his life. The Giants is a great opportunity to communicate issues of conservation, climate change and social justice. Having said that, the film never feels preachy. The filmmaker's lens is one of wonder and discovery. They allow the majesty of our natural world to speak for itself. Much like the protagonist Bob Brown, the film is steady, calm and clear. It's hard not to be inspired by Bob Brown and the Giants. It will stand as a great portrait of a living national treasure who has created an indelible legacy. I hope also it inspires engagement and action for the many essential battles that lay ahead.
Back in 2010, I spoke to conservationist David Suzuki about the then release of a film about his life called Force of Nature. It seems very relevant to play that interview to you now, considering he features in the Bob Brown documentary, The Giants. Here's David Suzuki. Force of Nature gives audiences uh, both a sense of your life's work through your legacy lecture and and also an understanding of your personal life in, in ways I don't think we've seen before. As a media professional for many years, fronting the camera with the aim of helping everyday people understand science, I wonder how it was for you to suddenly be the subject of someone else's microscope. Very scary. Very <laughs> scary. I mean, uh, when I was approached uh, with the possibility of doing a feature film, I immediately jumped at the chance because I've seen the impact of a feature film compared to a television program. You know, when you watch TV at home, all kinds of things interrupt. The phone rings, a dog has to be let out, you go for a beer or you go to the bathroom or whatever. So you don't watch it very intently. But in a movie theater, you've paid money to go and you're a captive audience then for the next 90 minutes to two hours. And the, the way you get your impact is much greater than a television show. So I jumped at the opportunity, and uh, I thought I wanted to do a big Avatar-type film <laughs> about the evolution of the world, the universe. But that was quickly rejected, and they boiled it down to this legacy lecture. And then when I realized they were going to kind of tie it into a lot of my own life story, it, that was very scary to me, to have someone else put me into situations that were very emotional and, um, I don't know, I could reveal myself in ways I guess it could be embarrassing or whatever, but Sterling Gunnarsson, the director, was a man I came o over the months to, uh, to have a great deal of respect for, and uh, so I entrusted him with my life, basically. I said, okay, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be a part of this, and, and I trust you to treat me with some kind of dignity, but... Uh, it was scary at the beginning. Well, I think that relationship uh, has clearly paid off. It's a very uh, beautiful portrait of your life. And oh, I, thank you. I don't think that you, you could really achieve that without that kind of implicit trust between subject and filmmaker. No, I think you're absolutely right. If I had been all constantly worried about what the hell is he going to do with this, I, I would have been a very different kind of person. But I came to feel very relaxed with him, and uh, he threw me into a couple of situations where I was actually surprised myself at the extent to which uh, he aroused a, uh, a number of emotions in me that came deep from inside, and uh, I don't think I would have ever done that if I didn't uh, have such great um, faith in, in Sterla. I guess with films like uh, An Inconvenient Truth, a film like this builds on that, uh, but it gives it a very personal story as well. I, I very much like how uh, getting the opportunity to see how you came to science, but you've been talking about these issues for such a long time. Yeah, I have. Uh, <laughs> I, I had thought that Force of Nature would be kind of like um, an inconvenient truth, but, but uh, a further development of that. But uh, turning it into a kind of life 
life history as well, my personal involvement, how I came into environmentalism, I think gave it a dimension that, that was lacking in An Inconvenient Truth. But An Inconvenient Truth was a very, very important film at its at that moment, I think. But did you find it difficult then as a media person, because you have many years in the media, did you find it difficult to control your input into the production or did you just give yourself over as a subject? Well, that's a very insightful question because... Uh, Sterla likes to say he realized I had made some kind of shift when I stopped looking straight into the camera and giving what he said was a speech. Uh, and it, it took me several months before I stopped trying to control it. I kept saying, well, how the hell is this going to fit? Like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, where is this going to... He kept saying, David... I'm not doing a television program, I'm doing a film, and that's what I do. You don't know how to do that. And it took me a long time before I finally just said, to hell with it, I have no idea how he's going to put this all together. And I didn't, and, um, and trusted him to put it together. And the result of that was I had to see it several times before I realized what he had actually crafted. That is, he'd taken certain things that I said at certain stages in my life and broadened it out, you know, like there's a whole section where I'm with a bunch of hippies on an island smoking pot, and uh, and then suddenly, you know, you get this shot from Vietnam, and uh, it took me a while to realize what he had actually crafted. But he... I think really tried to show that in my lifetime, I've lived through a number of the these major events like the civil rights movement and uh, the the Vietnam movement and Pearl Harbor with such a major event on your life. Uh, yes, absolutely. And in many ways, he correctly identified that was the critical, a critical, critical moment in my uh, development, my path. A fascinating component of the film, I think. Many would say that one of your great achievements has been to bring the idea of climate change into the popular consciousness. But I wonder if there are other concepts that you still feel humanity in general has not yet embraced. And uh, uh, I wonder what uh, those another, might be. <laughs> another very, very good question, because we've just had an election in Canada and uh, a right-wing uh, government has been elected after five years of uh, minority uh, government. He's now got a, a complete uh, um, uh, control of, of Parliament. And for me, uh, while I think this is going to set back uh, the environmental um, movement for five years now, in fact, I think it's good because the, the glaring differences between his, the, the current government's position and an environmental position will become very, very clear. He's had to be very cautious because he's had a minority government for five years. Now he can put his agenda on the table. And I think the point about environmentalism is it shouldn't be a political party. You know, and I've talked to Bob Brown about this a lot, that, you know, I'm glad the Greens are in there raising these issues. But really, uh, we, we have to work towards a time when a Green Party is absolutely irrelevant. Because what environmentalism is, is a different way of seeing the world. Right now, we're dominated by the view that the planet is basically our plaything. It's ours to use. If we see a resource we can exploit and make money on, we're going to do it. 
we don't see ourselves as a part of a much larger complex uh, picture, that we are a part of the biosphere, that as animals, as biological beings, if we don't have clean air, clean water, clean soil that gives us our food, sunlight that is captured by photosynthesis, and a diverse spectrum of animals and plants on the planet, we don't survive. Surely that those things should be the most highly protected things, uh, our highest priority. How can we say we can't afford to act on climate change? That's like saying that our economy is more important than the very air we breathe, the atmosphere that gives us our seasons and climate and weather. It doesn't make sense. Is it almost that uh, the major challenges ahead are conceptual, even though there's a physical nature to them? No, you're absolutely right. The challenges are not scientific or technological or even economic. It's perceptual the perceptual lenses through which we perceive the world. So long as we act as if we're so smart, we can essentially recreate, remake the planet to do what we wanted. We're in deep trouble because we don't know enough to manage the entire planet. The change is in realizing that we depend for our very well-being and our survival on the health of the biosphere, on the air, the water, the soil, and so on. And, you know, once you understand that, then it's not acceptable to use the air as a garbage can, which is what we're doing now. Fifteen percent of Australian children now develop asthma. That's not normal. But what do you think is going to happen when we pour the most toxic chemicals into the air? And it's the same with the soil and into the water. So we've got to change. And and, uh, I like to think that Australia is at the forefront of the change because you're realizing that Australia is unbelievably vulnerable to the impact of climate change. And um, I'd like to see Australia leading the world in the move towards the energy future, which is renewable energy, and you've got something Canadians would kill for, and that's plentiful sunshine. And you've got the center of your continent that is an absolutely perfect place to put up your great solar collectors and generate a huge amount of of electricity. And so uh, it just takes that shift in the way that we see the world. And then you realize we can't go on saying coal is a critical part of our future. Sunlight is a critical part of Australia's future. Uh, You know, uh, geothermal energy is a, a critical part of your future. And that's all we have time for on Cellular Dreams. Be sure to tune in next week for our interview with Bob Brown. If you'd like to catch a replay of the show or extended interviews, go to 2ser.com slash celluloiddreams. I'm going to leave you now with some music from 1980s Being There. Perhaps one of the best political satires of all time, Being There was released shortly before the untimely passing of its star, Peter Sellers. From Diodato, here's 2001 as you've never heard it before. Mm-hmm.